Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers, providing you with practical advice to enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. The advice given in this podcast is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia's Stroke Foundation, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. Having a stroke can affect your emotions and your personality, and particularly in the short term, but sometimes these changes stick around. And these changes include things like emotional ability, which can make you laugh or cry for no reason. They can really affect your life and your interactions with others. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the emotional and personality changes a stroke can bring and what you can do to cope with them. We'll speak to one of our regular guests, psychologist associate professor Marie Hackett, and also to Strokeline's own Kirsty Cole. But first we have on the line Jenny Ferrier, a stroke survivor from Tasmania. Jenny had her stroke six years ago, and she's a valued member of the Enable Me community and an advocate for stroke at the state and even the international level, with her story being selected for an exhibition at the World Stroke Congress in Montreal this year. Welcome to the podcast, Jenny. Thank you, Chris. I've already mentioned there that you're world famous. Yeah, sounds like it, doesn't it? It's pretty impressive. <laughs> Um, for those who haven't heard it, could you please just tell us quickly your stroke story? Well, five and a half years ago, I had a massive stroke to my right side of my brain that left me totally paralysed on my left side. Um, and I spent three and a half months in hospital altogether. And learning, I thought I would never walk again. And that was the, learning to walk was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. So I spent six weeks in the stroke unit, which is a brilliant place at our general hospital here in Launceston. And then I was moved to rehab. And during the time in the ward, I found I was being tearful a lot of the time. But by the time I got to rehab, six weeks later, it was full on. I cried when I was sad. I cried when I was happy. I cried when someone came to see me and and the um, a feeling of totally out of control with it. So I think that um, I it was a feeling of being um, not knowing how I was going to react to anything and I really didn't know until it happened. And I think at the bottom of it all was fear of the, and shock of what had happened because there was Absolutely no reason for the shock, and it absolutely altered our lives in that very second that it happened. I lost control of my life in independence, and my husband lost his independence as he became my carer. And so it went from there. Now, in the in the rehab unit, there was a very astute nurse who said to me, I think you need a little pill to help you with this, and she talked to the neurologist who came to see me. And he put me on an antidepressant, and that helped enormously. And then when I thought that all my crying was just sadness to loss of what had happened, then when I came home, I went to my GP, who's been my GP for 28 years and knows me very well. We talked about uh, medication, and he's, I said, but this is only sadness, mainly, I thought. 
And he said, yeah, but it can slip from that into depression. So I've been on medication. I have had times off it, but it's helped me brilliantly. It really has. It's sort of helped me with um, stabilising myself, I think. You know, not not such a range, great range of emotions. And um, after about two years, I thought I was fine. I went off it for about, about two years until... About 18 months ago, I began to um, have a cluster of small strokes and I went back to my GP and said, I need to see the neurologist. So I saw him and he said, well, look, in the elderly, if we get a cluster, we go look at the heart. So I was sent to a cardiologist who was brilliant and he found the problem. I had a hole in my heart. So that was a huge relief because that was the source of the stroke. That's where it came via the heart. So that was a huge, huge discovery and a great sense of relief for me to to know that because up until that point, a lot of anxiety sat on my shoulders for well, a couple of years or more. Now that's been relieved. I'm not nearly so anxious about another stroke now knowing where the big one came from. And did that did that also help your other emotions, like the, the sadness and the, the tearfulness? Oh, yes, it did. It did. It helped enormously. Helped enormously. It helped me to get more control over the emotions uh, with not such a great range. I mean, I could still tear up easily, but um, there's not that great range of depth of emotion there as there was... And I was a person who always could express my emotions but also had control. So all that was happening was totally out of character for me. And I think a bewilderment to my husband as well. He couldn't understand it. And the big thing was, Chris, that during that long time in hospital, no one used the word emotional lability. Now, it wasn't until I got on to Enable Me that I discovered after talking to Diana about the, the, the meaning of it. Now, if the hospital had used that word and explained what it was, it would have been a huge help to me because I think that from what I've read, most stroke people seem to suffer with it in some degree. It's just that I thought I was out of control with it, or that was my big concern. It's about knowing what to expect then, and I guess if you know this can happen, then you can you can plan for it and, and treat it. Is that what you feel? Yeah, I think that's part of it, Chris. It's, um, it's the unexpected. You know, I'm not a person who likes to be in a big crowd and suddenly asked to get up and talk to them and about one issue or whatever. And um, I think there's the fear of that, and that would keep me away from such social occasions in case it happened. I was given a big afternoon tea for my 80th birthday three years ago and it was a shocking experience. I was absolutely overwhelmed and I could not talk. Now that's not happened since that ex- that experience. Maybe it taught me a lot, I don't know, but um, it hasn't happened since. And that is what emotional ability can do, this feeling of overwhelmness and out of control. That's what I hate about it. Well, on the basis of your experience, do you have any other advice for other stroke survivors out there? 
I would say go to your GP and have a good talk and um, talk to someone on the stroke line as well. That's really, really, really worthwhile doing. And I think the other thing is that having, bringing some enjoyment and laughter into, into my life is a big thing for me. I've got a wonderful family around me and um, four grandsons and that all helps. I've got the group of people I play mahjong with fortnightly and I've got back to my patchwork. It's about trying to get back to what you could do as much as possible that brought you joy and and, uh, pleasure. And um, I would recommend that anybody talk to their doctor about um, that medication. And also I found that keeping a diary on a bad day I will sit down and, re- and just write to myself about all the rotten bits and how I felt and get rid of it then or I don't bother keeping it. And uh, that that's also of great help. And um, I also do meditation, relaxation and listening to music and whatever. But I'll try to have some laughter every day about something. And I think it's something that, that everyone can, can learn from. Well, thank you very much for, for speaking to us and sharing uh, your wisdom there, Jenny. Well, I'm Chris. I hope it helps somebody. I'm sure it will. That was stroke survivor Jenny Ferrier. Getting good results at every stage of your stroke recovery depends on getting good health care. When you're in hospital, you need to know what to expect from your stroke team and what to do if something goes wrong. And when you're out of hospital, you need to know how to access rehabilitation services that you can afford so you can continue your stroke recovery. There's a lot of help out there, but the health system is complicated and it can be tricky to navigate. The Enable Me website can help with information on how the healthcare system works for stroke and the right links to find the help that you need. We also tell you how to choose a good GP. You can find all this by looking for Getting Good Healthcare under the Resources tab on the Enable Me website. That's enableme.org.au. And now we are joined on the phone by Associate Professor Marie Hackett. Marie is Program Head of Mental Health at the George Institute for Global Health in Sydney, and she has previously been a guest on our podcast on depression and anxiety and stroke in your 20s and 30s. Great to speak to you again, Marie. Thanks for having me again, Chris. And also in the studio, we have returning Kirsty Cole. Kirsty is an occupational therapist, and she can also be heard on the Stroke Foundation's Stroke Line. Hello, Kirsty. Thanks, Chris. Hi, everyone. Now, Marie, we have talked to you before, like I said, about emotions after a stroke uh, in terms of things like grief and loss and also the fear of another stroke. Now, is it possible to separate these from the other emotional changes that a stroke might cause due to its effect on the brain? I don't know if separate's quite the right word. There's all sorts of emotional changes that people experience after a stroke. Uh, Some of them come together. Some people have just one symptom or one disorder. Uh, And some people are lucky and and they don't really have any great emotional response to having had their stroke. Uh, But there are some that seem to be more disabling, some that people worry about more, and uh, they are all potentially treatable or manageable, and people should be talking about them. What about something like uh, emotional ability, which is, I believe, the uncontrollable changes in like laughter or crying after a stroke. Is that is that a particular effect on the brain, or is that caused by these kind of emotional impacts? We don't know is the short answer. It's a really appealing hypothesis, as I've said before, that say the stroke occurs in an area associated either with personality or 
and or mood in your brain that if the stroke's there and there's a bit of loss of blood flow and function in the brain, then that might create an emotional response. So that's true, possibly might occur, but there's no really strong evidence for that. So we we think it's partly true, but it's also possibly combined with a genuine reaction to having experienced, you know, a life-threatening event, which is frightening and can trigger all sorts of red responses like emotionalism. Emotionalism has all sorts of different labels. Uh, It's also called pathological crying or pathological laughing. Sometimes um, people find this quite offensive. It's called emotional incontinence. It might even be called pseudobulbar effect, but they're all the same thing. It's a tendency to cry easily uh, in situations where you wouldn't have triggered crying before. So it might be you're talking to someone who's come to visit you and they say goodbye, and suddenly you're just in floods of tears. You don't didn't know that was going to happen, so you can't predict it, and you can't stop it. It just has to run its course. For some people, their symptoms are mild. They happen infrequently and then they just sort of peter out over six months. For other people, they're frequent and they're really socially disabling. And a few people uh, can experience, instead of crying, they'll have inappropriate laughter, which is equally a problem. Okay, and um, I imagine with these kind of uh, these sort of changes, it can appear to affect the you know when it affects the way people respond to something, it affects their uh, apparent personality as well. Is that is that something that is connected to it, like any sort of personality changes that people might observe? Yeah, there's there's a whole lot of things, and I think we use the sort of broad term personality disorder uh, to group any of these emotional changes. Uh, if you're looking at a clinical diagnosis of a personality disorder, there's sort of three general categories. Uh, the first category, people sort of appear odd or eccentric, to use lay person's terms. Uh, in the second category, people can be quite dramatic, emotional or reactive. So if we're talking about emotionalism, it might fit under that cluster. And the third group of personality disorders uh, where people are avoidant or very dependent, or and that's where things like obsessive-compulsive disorder sit. So in order to diagnose someone with a personality disorder, you have to follow them up for a very long time. And we again, we don't really have really good data in people who have survived a stroke to, to sort of say this is, these are the main personality disorders that occur and also this labelling of things like emotionalism, depression, anxiety, fatigue, apathy, disinhibition, irritability, mania. They all might be fat under the same label. Some of them are very disabling for the person and things like uh, disinhibition where people might uh, vocalise things that they wouldn't have vocalised before. They might consider they're being more honest and other people consider they're being a bit more rude or where people are very irritable all the time look more like a personality disorder and they're very distressing for the family and for the carers normally. Okay, but those things don't count as a personality disorder as you would classify it. Is that what you're saying? Look, they all they all come under this umbrella term of a personality disorder, but we just they're just really not well defined in people with stroke. So there's there's something that I probably should have qualified a little bit earlier as well. We in the general everyday language we tend to use what I'd call a mental health metaphor. So we might talk about somebody who's done something a bit strange and we'll say they're completely mad. 
we might look at somebody else who does something else. You know, they might say, oh, have you seen the way, how tidy their house is? They've got OCD. So we are quite quick to use these labels, but they don't relate to a clinical diagnosis or a clinical disorder. But because we use these labels all the time in everyday language, it kind of, uh, it changes the way we think about these disorders. It almost trivializes them, especially for people who have a genuine problem. So people who worry a bit look very different from someone who's, who has uh, generalized anxiety disorder. Someone who has mood swings looks very different from someone who is bipolar. And people who are a bit sad aren't necessarily depressed. So we, in this conversation, and when people who've had a stroke talk to other people, need to distinguish between what's become a big problem that impacts on their day-to-day -day function means they have difficulty being themselves and doing what they want to do versus just everyday symptoms of feeling a little bit unwell that everybody experiences regardless of whether or not they've had a stroke and it's not a disorder. If you, a family member or a friend has had a stroke, you know that it's just the start of a long journey to reclaim your life. You see, a stroke attacks the brain, the most vital organ of all. It means that everyday tasks can instantly become a challenge and you need all the help and support you can get. And you'll find it at Enable Me, Australia's online stroke community. Connect with other stroke survivors, carers and health professionals to ask questions, share stories and inspire each other towards recovery. It's free and easy to join at enableme.org.au. A community message from the National Stroke Foundation and supported by this radio station. Well, this sounds like a good uh, time to ask Kirsty uh, about some of the experiences she's had talking to people on the over the phone on Stroke Line and through Enable Me. Uh, Kirsty, do you often hear, I guess, reports of the the kind of emotional and personality changes that we're, we're um, that Maria is talking about? Um, we do occasionally um, have um, stroke survivors um, and their carers calling to talk to us about changes that they've observed in um, personality and emotions after stroke and, and how this is impacting uh, on their lives. Uh, what kind of problems do you, do you hear about? When stroke causes um, person a personality change, it can have a big impact on everyone in the family as well as the stroke survivor. Uh, and um, these changes can affect um, how people feel towards their loved ones and change the dynamic of a relationship. So we often uh, hear about that. And um, family and carers might describe the stroke survivor becoming more irritable or impatient and say things like, he's not himself, um, and they might describe also more frequent emotional outbursts um, where the person might say or do something that um, seems out of character that they might not have said or done prior to the stroke. As Jenny and Marie have, have talked about a little bit already, um, some of the stroke survivors um, have called and described that it's challenging to... Um, manage their mood and strong emotional responses um, and controlling how that emotion is expressed as well. Um, the, and, and overall, it's, it sounds like it's a very, um, can be quite an isolating experience for stroke survivors and their carers and um, that it, they, it often, they often feel like that their family and friends don't understand. Right. Mm. Uh, now, I guess it's an interesting thing there, talking about how it affects carers, because we're talking about like the emotional impact of a stroke, but I imagine that carers themselves are going to experience some strong emotions and some, some big changes in their lives. 
Mm, and when carers are talking about um, the loss or change of a relationship, um, plans for their future might have gone out the window or ha- have to be put on hold. Um, they, there is, um, yeah, there's grief at that loss um, and um, sometimes um, stroke survivors will feel like they're no longer the same person and um, might um, that they're no longer as independent as they once were is is a quite a, a big theme. Um, so yeah, and in grief, when we talk about grief, um, people it does leave um, stroke survivors and their carers often feeling sad and angry and irritable, uh, anxious and overwhelmed. And so during our phone calls, we often um, talk about how important it is to reach out for help and that there's support available um, for them. Okay, Marie, does that sound sound right to you about the um, carers uh, experiencing their own grief and loss and, and needing that support? Absolutely. And I think um, one of the most overlooked groups of people in the stroke uh, experience is the family and the carers. Um, they're suddenly taking on a role that they didn't sign up for either. And they're also often the first person or people to bring things like uh, irritability and disinhibition, which is what Kirsty was talking about, where they suddenly sort of have outbursts that they wouldn't have had previously, to the attention of the rest of the family who might not understand or might not have seen it, or to the healthcare professionals. So they're the person who are on the receiving end, and it's not uncommon for someone who is depressed after a stroke to also have a carer who becomes depressed after a stroke. And we assume that the care is provided for the person who's had a stroke, but they often attend the visits with their carer, and the carer, no one's there to treat them. They have to go and get their own help, and it's really important that they do, that they make sure that you know, they log on to things like these Enable Me podcasts and they look at the Stroke Foundation website and use those resources for carers. It's almost abnormal not to experience some mental health problems, whether you've had a stroke or whether you're a carer. Okay, so what and what sort of things can be done then for people like stroke survivors or carers in these situations? Are there treatments that are available or strategies that they can use? There are definite strategies. Some have really good evidence behind them but in the world of stroke, but often we look outside of uh, the stroke literature to support treatment for psychological problems because our evidence base is limited. So uh, for something like emotionalism, uh, so if you're thinking about the symptom of crying, if I'm talking to psychiatrists, they'll often say the first symptom to go after providing an antidepressant is crying for someone who's depressed. Now, antidepressants in theory take about two weeks to start working if they're going to work, and most people will, about half of people actually switch to a different antidepressant for whatever reason, a side effect, or it's not working. But that symptom of crying goes very quickly, usually within 24 hours. So, so there's very small studies, but the evidence is quite strong for things like antidepressants. And they also work for treating depression in people with more severe disorders. But a lot of people have these mild symptoms, um, things that might be called dysthymia, just sort of this ongoing general malaise. And for that, you can access online resources. You can look at social support or talking therapies. And again, if you go through a group like uh, the Stroke Foundation, they'll be able to link you into resources Beyond Blue, who deal with depression, can link you into resources. 
There's online courses you can do, things like signing up to Mood Gym or eCouch. And as your symptoms, if they do become more severe or you first present with quite severe symptoms, people might look at a combination of talking therapies where you see a counsellor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist and an antidepressant. And they sh- they'll fiddle with those medications for about six months. And if they're found to be working and your symptoms have resolved, they, resolved, they usually continue those antidepressants for another six months. Okay, that's um, that sounds quite. Uh, there's quite a few promising options there, um, Kirsty. Um, in the light of that, what is your top tips and that you give people for uh, handling emotional and personality changes? Uh, so I think um, yes, it's key to not be afraid to ask for help um, and talk to your family and friends about what you're feeling. Uh, consider joining a support group um, where you can share your experiences and talk about what's been challenging you. Um, if you're a carer, I think it's really important um, to try and to take regular rest breaks um, because if carers aren't able to get support or enough time away that they um, often call us in a state of exhaustion and frustration, um, feeling socially isolated and really stressed. Um, so then this then impacts on their ability to um, deal with day-to-day. So um, there is um, professional support out there. A good starting point um, is to have a chat to your GP um, about um, referral to a psychologist um, or talk to any of the health professionals you might already be linked in with. Um, yeah, and and. I guess, yeah, it's important to remember that each stroke survivor's experience is different and unique and we welcome any calls to StrokeLine to further talk about your recovery and support after stroke. So give us a call. Great. And Marie, do you have any um, any final advice for stroke survivors and carers listening? I think the only other thing I'd like to say is, is for people to remember that these symptoms are often transient. So even without treatment, many people, their symptoms will resolve. So if you receive a diagnosis of depression or apathy or fatigue or emotionalism, it's not going to make you suddenly go and become an irrational person. It is what it is. You'll be looked after and treated for that disorder until it's resolved. But it may also they may also say, go away and come and see me in a couple of weeks because I want to see if these symptoms persist. And that's okay. That's actually recommended care. So make sure you do come back if that's what you're told. Um, and make sure you do go back and see a healthcare professional. And if there's an acute, so your symptoms suddenly get worse before you're due to see your healthcare professional again, go back early. Don't wait. Well, thank you very much. And thank you both so much for sharing your knowledge with us. Now, remember, if you want to speak to a health professional like Kirsty, you can call Strokeline on 1800 787 653. That's 1800 STROKE. Or you can ask a question through Enable Me and get a response from health professionals and other stroke survivors. And that's all we have time for today. If you like what you've heard, please give us a good rating and review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, as that will help lift us up in the search rankings so that other people can find our podcast. And thank you once again to our guests, Jenny Ferrier, Associate Professor Marie Hackett and Kirsty Cole. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. 
You can also suggest a topic or provide feedback on this podcast. Enable Me has qualified health professionals from Strokeline who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. The music in this podcast is signed by Stroke Survivor Antonio Ianella and his band The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio's studio, which you can find out more about at facebook.com slash studio4four99. That's F-O-U-R-99. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the Stroke Foundation in Australia, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. See strokefoundation.org.au.